So we're in the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. If you've been following along, I've, I've always said to you, context, uh, context determines content. In the beginning of the 21st chapter of Matthew's Gospel, what we find is that Jesus has entered Jerusalem. It's what we call the Palm Sunday experience. He's walked into Jerusalem. He's coming with his followers, coming in to proclaim the kingdom of God. And what we always fail to notice is that that particular parade, Jesus' parade has a destination. And the destination for the parade is the temple. And he goes to the temple on that very first day that we call Palm Sunday, and he walks all the way to the temple, and he overturns the tables of the money changers and all who are selling the doves and so on. You know that story fairly well. And as soon as he does that, he's offending everybody. Everybody at the temple is getting offended. Everybody's about to get mad at him. And then Jesus has a, almost like an oscillating movement, like an oscillating fan, moving in and then pulling out. So he goes in overturns the tables of the money changers and he oscillates back out and he goes to Bethage outside of Jerusalem. And when he travels back there, he gathers for his friends, the people who support him, and sort of gathers himself in order to be able to go back to Jerusalem. The next day he goes back to Jerusalem and immediately after that we have the story of the, the parable of the fig tree. And when he says that, everybody again gets offended. And so in order to uh, strengthen himself, he retreats from there, oscillates back out, and he gathers with his friends, and then the third day, he goes back into Jerusalem again, and that's our story today. This is the third story in the 21st chapter of Matthew's Gospel, and it's when the elders and the chief priests confront Jesus, and they ask him the question because they're upset, they're unhappy with him, and they say, why and by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the authority to do these things? Who do you think you are? And Jesus then presents him with a question, and he asks him, well, what do you think of John the Baptist? And, of course, they catch themselves in trouble because on one hand, if they say one thing, but on the other hand, they're being very good Anglicans. On the one hand, they say one thing. On the other hand, if I say the other thing, I'm going to get into trouble. So they say, we don't have an answer. We don't have an answer. And then Jesus tells him this particular parable, confronts him with this particular parable, which is the parable of the yes and no brothers. There's one brother who says yes, but doesn't do what he's asked to do. The other one who says no, but then goes ahead and does it. And then Jesus asks the simple question, and he says, what do you think? Who do you think did the work of the Father? Who do you, did, who do you think did what God wanted him to do? Well, it doesn't take a two-year-old to feed that big baby out, don't you think? After he asks that question, of course, they say, oh, I know who it is, the guy who said no, but then did it. There's a Roman Catholic Jesuit priest uh, whose last name I can't remember, but I remember the name of the book. It's called Experiencing Jesus. And he's the one who coined this particular phrase, which is that parables are an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That all parables are an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, using the day examples of our lives in order to point something that is about the, the kingdom of God. And then he goes on in this particular book, and he says there are two kinds of parables that you encounter in the biblical narrative. There are two kinds of them. One of them is a window parable, and the other one is called, he calls them mirror parables, window parables. A window parable is when you can see through a window and see something clearly on the other side. The parable that comes to mind is the parable of the, of the lost sheep, where there are 99 sheep, but it is the shepherd who goes out to find the one that has been lost. So it doesn't take a genius to figure out that this is about God that you look through the window and you see something about, the, uh, about the, uh, the sense of God, about who God is, that God is such an incredible lover that he will leave 
all 99 left out so that you can be found, so that you, whenever you've been lost in your life, you can also be found. And that's the window parable. I have to tell you, I love window parables. I don't know about you, but I have plenty of skeletons rattling around in my closet. And I want to tell you, that's supposed to be a joke. I'm really a very righteous person. <laughs> I don't have that many skeletons rattling around in my God. But, but I do need God's mercy. I do need God's compassion. And when I hear those, those parables like that, those window parables, I said, I'm there. I like it. Give me plenty of those because I want to know about the nature of God, a forgiving God, a compassionate God, a loving God, a graceful God. And then there are the mirror parables. I hate the mirror parables. And that's what we have today. We have a mirror parable. And the story of this mirror parable is that Jesus is holding up for each and every one of us a mirror inviting to see how we are doing. You remember Ed Koch, the mayor of New York City back in the 1980s? Everywhere that Ed Koch went, drove everybody crazy, he would say, how am I doing? How am I doing? In this case, it's Jesus saying to all of us, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? How are you conducting yourself? Are you a yes brother or a no brother? Now, what's interesting to me is that there's no yes, yes brother in this story. You would think that God would like us to be yes and then go ahead and do it, but no such thing. And I guess it's because sometime, all the time of our life, we're somewhere between saying yes and not doing it and no, but actually going ahead and doing it. The yes and not doing it is pretty simple, isn't it? We see it all the time. Have you been watching the Vietnam episodes uh, on PBS uh, the, last few, uh, the last few weeks? I have to tell you that there are plenty of institutions in our society that serve as mirrors for us. And the one that I appreciate the most, most from watching the, uh, uh, the Vietnam episodes is, uh, is, are the journalists. Are the journalists who finally hold up a mirror to all of us and say, here's the truth, this is what's going on, and we all know the government's been lying to us. They've been lying through their teeth all those years, lying through their teeth. And finally, even McNamara has to go on some sort of absolution tour. And it's true. I'm one who admires and appreciates journalism. They're the public mirror for our society. They hold us accountable. They hold elected officials accountable. And you can't just call them fake news. You have to look at it and say, where am I in this particular story? but it's too easy to point a finger at somebody else. I think what Jesus is inviting us in our story today is to look at ourselves. And where are you? I can tell you this, there are plenty of times when I've said no, I've said yes, and that acted against it or not done anything about it. Think about this. How many times have you thought about writing a letter to somebody and you have composed a wonderful letter, you have found all the right words, you have found the impeccable way to communicate with this person, and you've got it all in your mind like a narration, but you never put pen to paper. And you never send. Two days later, maybe you convince yourself that you've sent it. Maybe you lie to yourself and say, well, I thought about it, but you never sent the letter. I don't know if, I, if that's an individual experience that I've only had in my life, but I suspect that all of us have had some kind of experience around that. Remember the last line of that poem, Unsaid, by Dana Goya, and that line says, think of all the letters we write the dead. And that's because we didn't write it to them when they were alive. You read the news, I read the news. 
I see the catastrophe of all the hurricanes, whether it's uh, Texas, whether it's the earthquakes in Mexico, whether it's devastation of the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico and so on. And every day when I'm reading these things, I say, I need to write a check to the Red Cross. I need to write a check to the Red Cross. I need to write a check to somebody. I can't go down there to do anything, but at least I want to contribute something to be able to make life more bearable to those who are affected by the hurricanes. I have yet to send a check. I say yes, but I don't do it. I know at least five or six families who tell me that being with their family is really important, but never make the time for them. I think of all the people who are flag-waving, who are carrying on the flag and going on in one form or another, whether it's a demonstration for or against somebody. And the fact of the matter is this, that of all the eligible citizens in this country, only a fraction actually register to vote. And of that fraction who registers to vote, only some of those eventually go out and vote. It's like saying yes, but not acting on it. And it happens over and over in our lives. I don't know about you, but I experience it over and over. I see myself as one of the Yes Brothers in many aspects of my life. Then there's the No Brother. I'm interested in this guy. Why does he say no and then act on it? It seems to me that he is uh, the personification of all of us who have ever had to say no in order to actualize ourselves. For any one of us who has ever been a parent, if you've ever had the responsibility, the joy, and the burden of being a parent, and I've had a two-year-old, you know about what I'm talking. Drink your milk, no. Pick up your room, no. Go to bed, no. Here's a bowl of ice cream, no. Here's an Oreo cookie, no. Now you and I both know that that has to happen. At two years old, it's in our system to separate ourselves from our parents. And the way that we do it when we're, say, we're two years old is we say no to everybody. A way of individualizing ourselves. It's a process of individuation. It's, an op it's a process of being able to divide yourself from the parents. And it doesn't just happen when you're two years old. It happens on in life. The other day I was walking to, uh, uh, to the gym to work out. And while I'm walking to the gym, I walk by one of my neighbors, and this particular neighbor has two daughters, 15 and 13, both in high school. And so we greet each other, and we exchange pleasantries. She's watering the flowers out in front of her house. And finally, as I'm about to walk away, she says, but let me tell you something. And then she gives me chapter and verse of her relationship with her daughters about right now. And it goes on and on. And so I listen to every one chapter and verse of all the problems that she's got with the teenage daughters and so on. And the only thing that I could say is this. You know, they have to go through this. They have to be able to separate themselves from you. They have to say no to everything that you suggest. They have to do all these things because it's the only way that they're ever going to grow up. It's the only way that they're going to individualize themselves. It's the only way that they will be able to ultimately say yes with purpose, with truth something that they've accepted for themselves and have agreed to do. That was not very good news for my neighbor. <laughs> she was not very happy with my response. So finally, I had to add at the end, and at least in our family, they came back. At least in our family, they came back. 
It happens in our faith life, don't you think? My God, I remember the college years. I went to a college that had, uh, it's an Episcopal college, and there were chapel services all over creation. Let me tell you, I never attended one of those babies. <laughs> I couldn't stand the church. I couldn't stand the language of God. And it was all a way of having to reject something in order to ultimately be able to accept it with purpose and with truth. To be able to accept it as an expression of what I believe, not what somebody else believed. I think too much of the time, instead of saying no, what we usually say is yes, yes, just so that we don't have a lot of opposition to what we're trying to do. So we'll just go along, float down the river, because there's less uh, friction when you're floating down the river. But ultimately, we have to say no. And I wonder if that's what's happening with the second brother, the one who says no, who has to say no in order to consider what's being asked and in order to consider whether truthfully he can go and act on it. It's a mirror parable. It's offered for all of us to consider our plays in our lives, where we find ourselves in our lives. And it's an invitation from God, from Jesus holding up a mirror in front of us and saying, how are you doing? What do you think? How do you think you're doing? I forget which theologian it was who said that uh, Jesus doesn't want admirers. Jesus wants followers. And I think that's true. It's the mirror parable, tough as they are, asking us, what do you think? Where are you? Are you the yes or no brothers? Look in the mirror. What's moving, your mouth or your feet? I would suggest that Jesus would prefer our feet. Amen.